The sermon text for today is Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through 20. You can find this passage in the Blue Pew Bible on page 1523. Listen as I read God's word. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Here ends the reading. Good morning, everyone. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, my name is John. I get to serve as the lead pastor here at Elmwood. Uh, It's great to be together with you here today as we continue the series in the book of Mark. And as we do, one of the things that we have been uh, doing as a church family is we have been not just hearing the book of Mark on Sundays, we have been setting out to read this throughout the week. And if you've been here for the last number of weeks, you know that we have passed out some uh, Bible journals that look like this. And these, as we have been saying, are just a tool to help you spend time in the book of Mark. Uh, some of you like to use your own Bible. I uh, personally have my own that I like to use. So if you would rather use your own Bible, uh, we encourage you to do that. But these are a great resource, a tool for you. Uh, we had sort of run out of them, but we have more of those out of the connections table. So make sure that if you have not already, that you get a copy of one of those. Also, what we've been doing throughout this series is we have been allowing space during our gathering to hear from you what God is saying to you, what you're learning as you are reading the book of Mark. And so uh, we're just going to have time, about five minutes in each one of our gatherings where we can just share and hear from you. uh, I'll come around with a microphone and uh, we can let you share if there's something that you would like to share. Um, And we want to just encourage you, uh, number one, keep it under two minutes, please. Keep it under two minutes. I will slowly start walking away the longer you talk. So uh, keep it as short as you can. Um, Also, uh, we encourage you to use these questions as a guide. Uh, These questions, what's capturing your attention? What are you seeing in fresh ways? How is what you're reading leading you to delight in who God is uh, and, and other questions like that? So you can use those as a resource. And the last thing I would ask you uh, just to be mindful of is there are some of you for whom uh, the sharing time is like this brings joy to your hearts, like you love to share this kind of stuff. I just encourage you just be mindful of how often, how many weeks in a row you maybe talk. There are some of us in the room And I'm not saying this to shame anyone. I'm just saying there are some of us in the room who we will only speak up when there's an appropriate amount of awkward silence. Seriously, and and, and there there are some of us who will only speak when there's been enough time. And if someone else jumps in just immediately to fill it, that can uh, make it so that some of you who uh, are maybe a little bit more hesitant uh, would just not not share. So we want to just be mindful of how often uh, and how long we share. So... 
Uh, with that being said, I'm just going to, again, sort of walk around the room here with the mic, and if any of you have something you'd like to share, uh, just raise your hand, flag me down, and I will come to where you are, and we'd love to hear from you what you're learning and how God is using the book of Mark. see someone in the back. Sorry, I didn't see your hand. Kristen. Yeah, I was the one waiting for the awkward silence. Like, oh, should I say? I, I'll wait. Maybe somebody else will say another thing. No, <laughs> I'm Kristen. I was really, um, really touched last week in John's sermon on uh, Jesus' baptism. I thought of in a brand new way when he, um, when we read how God said, Jesus was baptized, and uh, the dove came on him, and God said, you are my son whom I loved. With with you, I am well pleased. And John mentioned something about how this was before Jesus even started his ministry. He hadn't done anything. He hadn't, you know, I mean, he lived (laughs) a good life, but he hadn't um, done any miracles. He hadn't raised anybody from the dead. He hadn't, you know, died for our sins, and God was still pleased with him, and it was just uh, something I never thought of before, how God said that to Jesus before he even, you know, did anything, so his God was pleased with his identity, or Jesus found his identity in God and not in what he did, and that is, I think, a good thing for us to all remember about ourselves, too, that our identity comes from God and not you know, all the things that we can do for him. (laughs) Amen. Someone else? And if you're in the balcony, I will make the trek up there just so you're aware. I won't leave you hanging. Oh, of course. Just as soon as I say that. I'm already mostly here, so. Uh, so in reading about when Jesus calls his disciples, uh, I just think about how captivating Jesus is and, like, do I really view him that way? Like, would I drop everything and just be faithful and go follow him no matter the cost? Um, it, I was really struck by how compelling Jesus is and how, like, they just didn't even view it as a choice, right? They said, like, no, this, this man is worthy of my whole life. And so that, like, that is my hope and goal, and I know that I fail at it daily. Uh, but I want to follow Jesus with that sort of devotion. Someone else? Dave? That was interesting when you said last week that there's nothing that we had to do uh, that Jesus did it for us. There is nothing we have to do except 
first of all, accept him as our Lord and Savior. We do have to do that. I mean, there is one thing, there are some things that are required. We have to accept him. And the work that, you know, it says that Jesus said, the work of man is this, to believe in God and in him whom he has sent. So uh, it's not so much that we go out and we do this thing or that thing. It's that we, your work is to believe. And once you believe, you accept him, and then the work is really done, and he works on you. I really appreciated that, too, about the identity, which she first shared, because um, that's so important for us to know about our own identity in Christ. Yeah. Yeah. Someone else? Scott? I've been reflecting on the character of John the Baptist, who was in our reading last week, Um, and specifically the outfit that he wore, that you don't wear an outfit like that and eat locusts and honey in the wilderness by accident. Mm -hmm. Um, The messianic prophecies specified that Elijah would come first. And he knew what he was doing. And it could have been very easy for John. The way to have a captive audience is to always make them feel like there's something coming, like they haven't quite reached the point. Um, And if he wanted fame, if he wanted following then he would always leave one thing unfulfilled. Mm -hmm. But for him to be able to say, that's him, that's the one who I've been telling you about, and now it's time for me to step down, um, really both legitimizes both the ministry of John and the ministry of Jesus. Mm. Yeah. One more? All right. <laughs> See, it works. <laughs> Say one. Well, I've seen <clears throat> some new things that I, I read Mark before, but um, I think uh, the older people will maybe see, agree with these words. But um, the longer <clears throat> you live, uh, you start to, uh, God works on us each day. And, and I'm seeing things here. I'm seeing... Um, that there is a urgency for all of us that said that believe in God to really put those words to um, to action, mm-hmm. and the calling to to uh, see what the reality of life is. And uh, in this lines, when he says the time has come, we're talking about the time of Mark, and uh, the time has come and is here. The kingdom of God is here among us. So um, with what David said, following on to that, uh, we need to uh, believe and take action mm-hmm. and, and put the word of God in us every day so that we may know him more and more and one day be able to see his face. Mm. Yeah, so good. Thanks for sharing, everyone. I love those, love those times. As we come to the book of Mark here today in this passage, would you uh, join me for a word of prayer? 
Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, you his servants. Praise the name of the Lord. Let the name of the Lord be praised both now and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to the place where it sets, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is exalted over all the nations, his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, the one who sits enthroned on high, who stoops down to look on the heavens and the earth? Lord, there is indeed no one like you. You are exalted over the earth. You are exalted over every aspect of your creation. You are our good and our wise and our generous king. And we worship you this morning for who you are. We ask that as we look at this passage in Mark today that you would give us a clear picture, a clear vision of who Jesus is and what it means to follow him. We pray that your spirit would, right now in this moment, meet us and minister to us each in a unique way. Lord, you know exactly what every one of our hearts needs today. Lord, some of us might need encouragement. Some of us might need a kind of rebuke. But Lord, we trust that you know what each of us need. And in gentleness, your spirit will bring what is needed to each one of us here today. And so we submit ourselves as we do each week. We submit ourselves to your word and we ask that you would help us to see your son Jesus and be changed by him. And all God's people said, amen. Well, we're making our way through these opening chapters of Mark and it's important to remember that Mark could have said just about anything he wanted to say about the life of Jesus. Everything, you know, you you imagine these guys who spent three years of their lives with the man Jesus, and you imagine taking all of that and condensing it into a a short 16 chapter, which may feel long to us, but after three years worth of being with Jesus, you just think they could have said and shared a whole lot of different things. And yet this is what Mark thought was important to share. And as we've been going through these opening chapters, I've been reminded of just how uh, how important these opening chapters are. Been re- reminded of uh, the identity of Jesus as it's uh, expressed to us here, and what it tells us about how to follow Jesus. And as we look at uh, this passage today, I wanted to just look at this in two different parts. We're first going to look at the message Jesus announced, and then secondly, we're going to look at the people Jesus called. The message Jesus announced and the people Jesus called. So first, let's think together about this message that Jesus announced. And the essence of his message we see in verse 15, where Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. And in verse 15, he says, the time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. So, of course, Jesus said, obviously, more than just those words when he went around. (laughs) That is the most condensed summary of what Jesus said as he was going about doing his ministry. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. So the first aspect of that is the kingdom of God has come near. In Jesus, the reigning presence of God has arrived. And we now have access 
to the kingdom of God through the person of Jesus, who is the king of the kingdom as well as the bringer of the kingdom. Now, there's a lot that we could say about the nearness of the kingdom, but where I want to just spend a few moments here today is just to say that the nearness of the kingdom is good news for us because we live under the shadow of death. In the Gospel of Mark, there are 13 times where someone approaches Jesus in a position of desperation. 13 times where someone comes to Jesus or someone comes to Jesus on behalf of someone else and they are all, to varying degrees, living under the shadow of death. So you see people coming to Jesus who are afflicted with impure spirits. You see people coming to Jesus who are oppressed by demonic spiritual forces. You see people coming to Jesus who are sick, who have different various kinds of diseases which make them ceremonially unclean and uh, put out of the community of faith. You see people coming to Jesus who are either themselves or someone that they know and love is either on the verge of or has already died and they're begging Jesus to come and to do something about it. And so the picture that you get as you read Mark and you see all these people coming to Jesus knowing that he is a miracle worker, you see this picture of people living under the shadow of death. And this is, uh, this is something that we experience as well. What we see in Mark is, is, that, is that creation is reeling under the power and under the, the influence and the presence of sin. And we experience the same kind of things in our world as well, but we're not going to take the time this morning to really sort of go down that trail of naming what all those things are. But I think it doesn't take a whole lot of effort for us just to recognize and to name ways that we too live under the shadow of death. The people are longing to be liberated from the presence and from the power of sin and sickness and disease and death and demonic spiritual forces. The people are living under, they're living under the shadow of death and the good news that Jesus proclaims as he comes is that the kingdom of God has come near. In other words, you currently belong to the kingdom of death and darkness but there has been made a way for you to be transferred out of the kingdom of death into the kingdom of God. There's there's access to Jesus. There's access to his kingdom. uh, And that's what we see Jesus proclaiming, that message, the kingdom of God has come near. The second aspect of this message, though, is repent and believe the good news. So Jesus announces the good news that the kingdom of God has come near, and then he says, repent and believe the good news. And repentance and belief, these are two sides of the same coin. These are inseparable from one another. We can't separate them. We shouldn't separate them. And both the aspects of repentance and belief, or repentance and faith, those are both necessary in order to enter the kingdom of God in the first place. That's one of the things that we see here, is Jesus tells us not only that the kingdom of God has come near, and that it's available to us, But it's not good news for us if the kingdom of God has come, if there's no way for us to access it, if there's no way for us to become a part of it. And so Jesus tells us not only that the kingdom has come, but he tells us how we become a part of it. He says, repent and believe the good news. Repentance is a word that for most of us does not fill our hearts with joy, right? It's not one of those words that we just, you know, it makes our hearts sing when we think about repentance. Uh, Repentance very simply is it's a change of mind. That's what the word literally means, is to change your mind. Uh, It's to to change direction. It's to do a 180 degree turn. It's to be walking one direction and then to turn around and walk the opposite direction. 
So that's what repentance is. And the Bible tells us that we need to repent not merely because we have done bad things. Certainly that's an aspect of it, that we have broken the commands of God that he's given to us. We've not done what we ought to have done. We have done all sorts of things that we should not have done. We've said things to people that we wish we could take back. Certainly there's a behavior element to it. But the Bible says that the reason we need to repent or we need to turn from sin, the reason we need to repent is because we have loved something else with the kind of love that only God deserves. That's the essence of what sin is. The essence of sin is not merely breaking the rules. It's not just doing bad things. It's not that God set up these sort of arbitrary set of rules and now you just need to follow in line. And when you break the rules, God is mad at you so you have to repent so God's not mad at you anymore. The essence of sin, as it's given to us in the Bible, is misplaced affections. The essence of sin is misplaced worship. And that's what we uh, need to repent of. We need to repent because we have loved something else with the kind of love that only God deserves. We have been uh, instructed by God and commanded by him to love him with our whole heart, our whole mind, our whole strength, with every fiber of our being. And we are creatures whose affections are divided. Our hearts are divided. And so we look to people or material possessions or things to provide for us a sense of safety and comfort and security and identity and meaning and purpose. We look to other people to affirm in us who we want to be. We look for identity in other people's affirmation of us, right? And, and none of those things typically that we search after are in and of themselves bad things. It's that we have loved those things with the kind of love that only God deserves. And so our hearts are divided, and, and it's, it's not as always clean and simple as just, oh, you did that bad thing. Sometimes it's hard to know. When has my vocation become something that is more valuable to me? Or, or, or at what point do I love my vocation as much as I ought to be loving God? Right? It's not always clean and simple. Uh, sometimes the lines are sort of blurry. And we have to do uh, lots of work to discern. How do I know when I'm getting near that line of loving something with the kind of love that only God deserves? But we all need to repent because we all are people who have hearts that are divided. And so this is the message that Jesus came proclaiming is first uh, to repent. God deserves our undivided affirmation and worship and adoration and thanksgiving. He deserves all of that. And so we repent, we turn from those things that we have looked to, to provide for us what only God is supposed to provide for us. And so we repent, we turn. But not only this, Jesus's message is not just repent. His message is belief. So it's sure it's repent of those things, but it's also look to Jesus and believe the good news. The good news is that the kingdom of God has come near and that in the person of Jesus, we have access not only to the kingdom, we have access to the king. That's what makes the kingdom worth pursuing. We don't desire to simply be a part of a kingdom if King Jesus isn't there reigning over that kingdom. And so the good news is that God has made his kingdom available to us and that we have full access not only to the kingdom, we have full access to Jesus who is the king. Now, this repentance and belief, this is, uh, this is certainly what it requires to enter the kingdom of God. 
But it's not just what it requires to enter. This is what life in the kingdom of God looks like. For those of you who are uh, grammar nerds, I've had some of you ask me, you should talk about more grammatical stuff. So here we go. Uh, In the original Greek language, uh, when it says repent and believe, those two words are present active imperatives, meaning it's an ongoing command to keep doing this thing. It's not just, hey, you repented once of your sin and then you move on from it. Hey, you believed the gospel once and then you somehow never did that again. No, this is a continual process of learning to repent and believe the gospel over and over and over and over again. As followers of Jesus, we don't get saved by believing the gospel and then go on to bigger and better things. The good news of Jesus is what we continually come back to. That's how we are changed and transformed as the gospel sinks deeper down into the core of our being. And so this is the message that Jesus proclaims is repent and believe the good news. And our desire for repentance and belief is based entirely in us seeing and understanding the nature and the character of God. Because if we don't see who God is, we will not desire or want repentance or belief. But as we look to the picture of who God is that's given to us in the Bible, what we see is that he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in steadful, faithful, covenant, loyal love. And that every single time we come to him in confession, every single time we come to him in repentance, he is quick to forgive us. He is quick to pour out new waves of mercy and forgiveness on us every time we come to him. We do not exhaust, we cannot ever exhaust his forgiveness or his faithfulness or his mercy towards us. And so when we see that picture of who God is, when we know his character, all of a sudden confession doesn't become this thing that I'm in in any way, shape, or form afraid of. No, my heart begins to love confession because when I confess and repent, what repentance does is repentance rids us of the things that dull our affections for God. That's what repentance does. When we come to God in confession and say, God, I have loved this thing. I've loved this person. I've loved this idea or this ideology or this whatever it is. I've, I've given my heart to that in ways that I never ought to have. When we confess that to God, we unload that so that we can have hearts that are fully in line with God and fully delight in who God is. So repentance is good news because it rids ourselves, it rids our hearts of the things that keep us from fully loving and enjoying Jesus, who is our king. And so when we see a a picture of the nature and the character of God, we desire repentance, we desire faith. And this life of repentance and faith that we read about here is not in any way, shape, or form a thing that we sort of begrudgingly say, okay, I guess I'll repent and believe. No, we desire, we love to do it because we know the nature and the character of God. So this is the message that Jesus announced. The kingdom of God has come near. You have access to it. And the way of life in that kingdom is through the ongoing process of repentance and belief over and over and over again in fresh ways every single day. So that's the message that Jesus announced. But we not only see that, we also see the the people Jesus called. Verse 16. As Jesus walked Besides the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, 
and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Now, I think it's important that we see that these are the first people that Jesus called. The first people we see Jesus calling are ordinary fishermen. They're from the uh, region of Galilee. And these are, these are men who are in the fishing industry. You can tell that from here. And they live in Capernaum, which is a, a giant, uh, there's many different ports and cities around the Sea of Galilee. And the, sort of the main industry there is uh, a fishing industry. So it makes sense that Jesus would call these people because that's the dominant industry in that area. It would be like Jesus going and calling a tech executive from Silicon Valley. That's the, kind of the idea here, is that he called sort of just the ordinary average person from that area. There was nothing that set these men apart from anyone else. If you put these men in a lineup with 50 other people just off the street from Capernaum or from wherever they were, you would not be able to pick them out of the crowd. Because there was nothing that made them somehow more capable or more qualified. There was nothing that gave them an edge to being a follower of Jesus. They were simply ordinary, common, day-laboring fishermen. And these are the people that Jesus calls. Now, is what we would expect is we would expect Jesus, if he was going to launch a worldwide movement, right? We would expect Jesus to find the most influential people, so that he could leverage their sphere of influence and their social media following and all the sort of brand name recognition they have and the sort of the built-up trust that they have. We would expect Jesus to find people like that and to tap into their social network. We would expect Jesus to find people who were the influencers, people who were the, the people in positions of power, the ones who had authority in that culture. We would expect him to find people who might be the equivalent of having a book on the New York Times bestsellers list. We would expect him to find the cream of the crop, the best of the best people. And what we see Jesus doing here is something that looks like the exact opposite of that. Jesus went and chose common, ordinary fishermen. What Jesus did here is Jesus broke every single rule that is given to you in a business book in the 21st century. Every single business book you will read says, in order to be successful, you need to get, quote-unquote, the right people on the bus. Jesus didn't get the, quote-unquote, right people on the bus. He chose people who were unqualified, which was the thing that made them qualified to be his disciples. And not only did he choose people who were just common, ordinary fishermen, they're also from this region of Galilee, so the region of Galilee, you see that circled on the top half of the screen here. That was a region in the northern part of Israel that was uh, quite a ways north of Jerusalem, which is where that smaller circle is down there. That was the center of religious Jewish life in the first century, was Jerusalem. And then all the way up there in the north country, sort of in the, in the sticks, you've got this place called Galilee. Galilee was a place uh, that had a, a, you know, a fairly decent sizable footprint, and there was about 25,000 people that lived in that whole region. Okay, That's a, similar to the population of New Brighton. And it was spread out. So this was not a you know, densely populated, this was not an urban center of the day. Uh, this was not a place of cultural influence or cultural power or any of those things. 
Not only this, but since it was in the northern part, they were close to, closer to where the Gentiles lived. And so the people who lived in Galilee were much more intermixed in their relationships and in their living situation with those who were Gentiles. And so those who were Jews from the south portion, the south region of Jerusalem, where all the super spiritual Jewish people, the religious elites were, they looked upon the people who were from Galilee as defiled. They were looked upon as somehow corrupted because they were so closely, you know, they were rubbing shoulders with the Gentiles and they were somehow defiled because of that. And so these are the people that Jesus calls to be his disciples. Jesus could not have picked a more unlikely group of people to surround him as the Jewish Messiah than ordinary people who were known as corrupted and defiled because they lived in close proximity to the Gentiles. And yet this is the kind of people that Jesus chose to be his followers, these common ordinary people. Now, there's a lot that we could say about this passage. And what I want to do in our last few moments here is um, just explore the heart of Jesus for ordinary disciples. There's a lot of scholars that notice in the book of Mark that there's a very negative view of the disciples that are portrayed. As you read the book of Mark, you see many, many stories. Mark chose intentionally to tell us stories that highlight the failure of the disciples. Okay? They're constantly doing boneheaded things and saying boneheaded things, and they're constantly just not getting it, and they don't understand. And even at the very last thing we're told in the whole gospel is that the women who went to the tomb disobeyed the voice of the angel. Okay? So this is not this like glowing picture of these wonderful disciples. It continually highlights for us the failure of the disciples. I find myself asking the question, You know, what must it have been like for Jesus? What must it have been like for him to surround himself? Let's just take the 12 at this point. What must it have been like for Jesus to surround himself by these 12 disciples who constantly don't get it? And after three years of Jesus saying, okay, guys, and he's teaching them and he's showing. And after three years, they still simply don't understand. What I ask is, How many times did Jesus roll his eyes? You know, oh my goodness, here we go again. Oh, you guys still don't get it. When are you finally going to, you know, pull yourself together and and get what I'm telling you? The question that I ask is, how often was Jesus irritated by his disciples? How often was he frustrated or angry with them? How often was he disappointed in them? maybe even embarrassed of his disciples, right? Those are the questions that come into my mind and I've been sort of pondering, okay, what must it have been like to be Jesus? And the more I think about this question, the more I realize that the reason I asked that question in the first place is because I have cast Jesus in my image. The reason why I say, boy, he must have been so frustrated is because that's what I would do. When the people that are around me don't live up to my expectations. When the people in your life don't live up to your expectations, typically, that leads you to become frustrated. It leads you to become irritable. It leads you to have some sort of relational or emotional distance from them. And I, and, and I think, okay, if, if these guys just fail and fail again, you know, how, what, was, what did Jesus do? 
Didn't that drive like this rift in their relationship? And yet what we see in Jesus is that thankfully Jesus is nothing like me, right? Thankfully Jesus is nothing like me. And the picture that we have is that Jesus loved his disciples. You just imagine Jesus walking next to the Sea of Galilee and seeing these brothers out in the boat and his heart is filled with love for them. That's why he called them was because he loved them. He didn't call them simply because he said, you know, I've got this mission I got to get on. I've got this task I need to do and I need some good help. And so I'm going to go find all these people. No, Jesus called them because he loved them. Jesus knew that they would fail him over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. He knew that they would fail him. And yet he did not, it didn't lead them, it didn't lead him to uh, pull away from them. Jesus knew that they would fail him. He knew that they also, on the other side of that, he knew what they were capable of in the power of the Spirit. And so Jesus knew all of this and he loved his disciples. Their failure did not lead Jesus to pull away from them. It didn't drive Jesus away, but it increased his love for them. That doesn't make any sense to me. When Jesus saw their failure, it wasn't like they dumped a bucket of cold water on the campfire. When the disciples failed and when Jesus saw their failure, somehow in a way that I don't think we will ever understand, and in a way that completely defies all human logic, that led Jesus to become closer to them. It led Jesus to love them. In those moments where they failed, Jesus knew this is precisely why I have to come and bring deliverance. This is precisely why I have to go to the cross and to give my life in place of theirs. Because he saw them in the midst of their vulnerability. He saw them in the midst of their brokenness. He saw them in the midst of living under the shadow of death and and seeing them in that place didn't lead him to be repulsed by them. It led him to love them. And so Jesus loved his disciples. Having seen their failure, he didn't have second thoughts about the cross. Like maybe I would have if it was me. After three years and you still don't get it, we're done. (laughs) Jesus didn't do that. Having seen their failure, he didn't have second thoughts about the cross. As Jesus was, the night before he died, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's agonizing in prayer, and the disciples are once again failing him because they're supposed to be staying awake and watching and praying, and they're sleeping. And Jesus doesn't fall on his knees and say, Abba, remind me again why I'm doing this. Jesus falls on his knees, and he submits himself to the will of the Father. And he loved his disciples. He knew precisely what they needed. And Jesus loved his disciples. And in fact, it's Jesus himself who's the one who's leading them towards Jerusalem. We see in chapter 10 that where it tells us that Jesus and his disciples were on their way to Jerusalem and Jesus was leading the way. And you're like, Jesus, don't you know that that's where you're going to become killed? You're going to get executed there? Jesus did know that. And all throughout the Gospels, Jerusalem is the place where Jesus is opposed Jerusalem is the place of death for Jesus, and Jesus is the one leading his disciples towards that place where he knows that he's going to die. And so we see this picture that Jesus loves his disciples. Jesus loved to give himself for them. He did not recoil in disappointment when they failed, 
but rather their failure exposed even greater depths of his love and his compassion and his grace and his forgiveness and his mercy. And so Jesus, seeing the failure of the disciples, seeing those ordinary common people, his heart was not repulsed by their failure. That's what led him to draw closer to them because he knew that they needed forgiveness. They needed deliverance. And so it drew Jesus even closer to them. Friends, do you know that Jesus has that same heart for you? Yes, you will fail. Yes, you will flounder. Yes, you will mess things up. Yes, you will do all sorts of things that you should not do and not do things you ought to do. And yet Jesus still has that same heart for you. Jesus loves not just those disciples. Jesus loves his disciples. And so there's those of us in the room here today, um, pretty much all of us, we are just ordinary, fairly unimpressive people by the world's standards, right? And yet we are the kinds of people, precisely the kinds of people that Jesus loves. The clearest demonstration of this love is we see Jesus ultimately going to the cross. And the cross tells us everything that we need to know about the heart of God. The cross tells us everything we need to know about the heart of Jesus for us, that he loves us, that he's for us, and in spite of our failure, he doesn't abandon us, he's not repulsed by us. Our failure leads to him extending mercy and compassion, and he loves to do so. He loves to take ordinary disciples just like us and shower us with his forgiveness and shower us with his affection. And not only this, but think about Jesus tells them, I'm going to send you out to fish for people. Jesus sends his disciples out on a mission. And these same disciples who we see constantly, you know, screwing up and failing in the book of Mark, those same disciples are the ones that God used to launch the worldwide movement that exists 2,000 years later. And so God used those ordinary people for things that they were not capable of doing. Through the power of the Spirit, God works in and through his people to bring about things that we could not accomplish on our own. And so we see that God loves his disciples. We see that God loves to show forgiveness and compassion to his disciples. We see that Jesus then sends us as ordinary disciples out on mission with him. And as we go out on mission with him, he does all the work through us. And we get to just celebrate and enjoy what God is doing. And so we come to the communion table today and we are reminded of our brokenness, of our idolatry, of our sin. And we come to remember and to celebrate the good news that the kingdom of God has come near in the person of Jesus. And that he's given us access to it. And that he's given us the gift of repentance and faith. He's made a way for us. And he loves ordinary disciples like us. And so as we come today to receive the broken body and shed blood of Christ, I want to encourage you to, as you, as you receive that in your hands, be reminded of the depths of God's love for you. Be reminded of the fact that in spite of your failures, God doesn't withhold from you the broken body and the shed blood of his son. But that is precisely what you need, and that is exactly what God has provided for you. So come today with gladness and with joy as we come to the communion table. As we do so, I want to invite you to take a few moments of silence for confession and reflection.